Hey, Risto here from George Mason University. We have a full house today. Uh, I'm joined by a group of scholars who co-wrote an article that was part of a JTPE special issue recently. Uh, this special issue had its own podcast led by Stephen Harvey and his colleagues. I think it's episode 137. Uh, and we decided to bring on some individual papers to discuss them in more detail. So here's one. Um, we are here with Kevin Richards, Chad Killian, Chris Kinder, and Casey Cushing. Um, we're going to be discussing their 2020 article titled Twitter as a Professional Development Platform Among U.S. Physical Education Teachers. And it was just published in Journal of Teaching and Physical Education. And so thank you so much for joining us to talk about your article. Yeah, thank you so much, Risto. Um, so just uh, uh, before we jump in and get started, I just wanted to acknowledge uh, the one co-author who, who's not here today, so she's not going to have a chance to speak. Um, that's uh, Kazen Badshaw, and she was uh, an undergraduate student who worked in our lab, um, similar to Casey Cushing, who is on with us is gonna, and is going to speak a little bit about her role in the project. Uh, but Kazen has since graduated and gone on to professional school, so she's doing amazing things. Um, uh, and just wanted to you know, acknowledge her for her role in this project. Awesome. And you laid out a great transition for me. So, Casey, uh, I've been told that you're an undergraduate student and got uh, co-authorship on this study. So can you describe your role in this project and overall experience working in a research lab as a student assistant? Yeah, for sure. So I am a senior at U of I. I'm actually graduating in a couple of weeks, which is very exciting. I was so lucky to be put on this project and get co-authorship. Um, as a main member of this team, I coded and analyzed the transcripts looking for themes um, within the participants' interviews, and then we would come together and discuss what themes we found were most important and found throughout all the participants' interviews. It was really such an amazing experience working in this research lab because I got to form relationships with other students and professors which made me feel a lot closer to the university. I also really enjoyed learning about qualitative research and pedagogy, which isn't necessarily my field of study, but it was fun learning something new. Awesome, and uh, great rich experiences outside of the classroom for sure. So um, can you all begin by just telling uh, us a little bit about the background leading up to the study, what previous work uh, have you done in this area, and what's your motivation for uh, going down this road? Um, yeah, so I, I, I can take that one, Risto. Uh, so this this study, I think, actually goes back uh, a few years to an AERA conference, and I was I'm, I was trying to remember. We were talking before the before the, the uh, interview here started to, to try to remember exactly what conference that was, but it was a few years ago now, and of course our whole conference conference schedule has gotten thrown off by COVID. Um, but uh, I was at a, a, a session um, that, that Vicki Goodyear was leading about um, technology and, and teachers' use of technology through um, things like MOOCs uh, and Twitter and all these other social media platforms uh, and how they were accessing it for professional development. And I just was sitting there thinking to myself, gosh, I don't think that that's a topic that's really been explored in depth through a socialization lens. And so, um, you know, I got with uh, with Chris and Chad, and we sat down and started to to kind of scope out a study. You know, originally we had um, we had talked about uh, interviewing teachers who were very active on Twitter, and I think Chris is going to talk about this a little bit later. So it's a bit of foreshadowing, but we found out that figuring out who is active and who's not active was a bit of a difficult task. 
um, uh, and we had to kind of change our markers a few times along the way. Um, but but yeah, you know, so we were just trying to fill that hole in the literature that we felt, you know, with all of with, with the impact that social media is, has had on on our lives. Um, you know, we wanted to understand the socialization influence of that. And, and although we didn't understand or anticipate it at the time, um, I, I would say in retrospect, this work is even more relevant and valuable now than, than ever because of uh, everything we've seen through the pandemic. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you, you used role socialization theory as your guiding framework. And Kevin, you've been on the podcast before talking about teacher socialization. So people can look up that information. I think it's episode five and theory breakdown two. But in brief, can you just give us an overview of the theory and the role it plays specifically in this study when you talk about Twitter? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, the, the main goal there is to understand you know, how teachers have been recruited into, prepared for, uh, and, and then socialized through their lives and careers, particularly as it relates to, um, to to physical education. You know, so what are the facilitators and attractors that that make physical education seem like it's going to be an interesting career for somebody? You know, based on what we know, a lot of recruits into physical education tend to have strong background in sports. They tend to have seen their coaches and teachers, especially their PE teachers, as being influential people in their lives, and you know, they're wanting to continue that and see physical, continue that involvement in sport and physical activity, and see um, uh, physical education as one way to do that. And so then we get them into our uh, you know, teacher education programs where they're prepared professionally for that that role, um, uh, you know, through through Pete, uh, to the teacher ed. Um, but you know what. But people aren't blank slates, right? So when you have when you have a student come into Pete, they don't just show up and you know have no impressions or ideas about what physical education should be about. They probably spent thirteen thousand hours or more in and around schools um, themselves as kids when they were growing up, and so they already have these kind of ideas about what PE is, what their job as a teacher should be, through their observations um, and interactions they've had with their own teachers. So you can't assume that people are necessarily going to adopt the values and beliefs of Pete if it's very incongruent with their um, with their previous socialization, which is what makes the socialization process a bit a bit challenging. And um, you know why Hal Lawson described it as problematic, not automatic. Mm -hmm. uh, and then going into um, going into uh, school environments, um, you know, schools can can provide a variety of different circumstances that that range on a spectrum from again, drawing from, from Lawson's language from optimal to suboptimal in terms of uh, the facilitators um, or barriers to quality practice. You know, if you're a brand new teacher and you've got all these interesting and innovative ideas um, and you start, and then you come into a school where there are teachers who've been around for a while and they have kind of their way of doing things and they're set into that way and not very interested in changing, um, you know, it, it can be it can be difficult to then do the things that you want to do as a new teacher with new ideas. Uh, if you know if there if there are contextual barriers to that, um, and, and so relationships formed with others, um, you know, things like marginality and isolation are, are big themes within occupational socialization theory, and we wanted to see how those things played out in um, you know kind of an online virtual network. Uh, you know, and we quickly realized that the Twitter community around physical education is quite large and quite intricately connected. Um, and, and so we wanted to learn a little bit more about that and the implications it has for, for teacher socialization. And you 
you focus specifically and only on the use of Twitter. So why did you choose this particular social media platform and what's the kind of the relevance of social media professional development now more generally that we were going through this uh, pandemic? Hey, Risto, this is Chad here. Um, so kind of pointing to what Kevin just said, I think it, Twitter is the most obvious social network um, social media network with the most sort of explicit networking effects, so to speak. So, so people connect very easily on it. It was obvious to us that, that there was a, a pretty robust community um, evident on the platform at the time of the study. Um, and so that plus sort of the, the differences in social media platforms, I think um, each social media platform sort of has its own role and its own own sort of use and value to the users. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Twitter, the most obvious one uh, was for professional development. Um, it was interesting because we started this study, what, a year before we, you know, COVID came on. So um, we can see now looking back the relevance that it has. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, people not being able to travel to conferences. Um, we can't gather um together physically. Um, and so we're seeing uh, a heightened value of, of social media for professional development uh, now more than ever. Um, and it sort of started with PHE Canada that had their cross country gathering, which is sort of the stimulus for, you know, our peak collaborative. Yeah. Um, you see the emergence of the ASEP um, connect uh, mm-hmm. and some, some uh, similar virtual gatherings um, in Australia as well. Um, and they're not necessarily occurring on Twitter, but they're being advertised, they're being promoted, they're being discussed afterwards. And so, um, you know, one of the questions now, I'm sure we'll get into like future directions, but we can see sort of the explicit professional development that occurs with sharing videos, sharing tips, um, but also sort of peripheral professional development that might occur um, in a different environment, but promoted through social media. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, I mean, you have all these people on Twitter. How, how did you recruit all, you know, these random handles or people like what was your recruitment process and how did you find participants who actively were using Twitter and how did that kind of work in the, in the study? Yeah, Risto, this is uh, Chris Kinder. And um, as Kevin mentioned, initially we uh, sort of were, going through Twitter and looking for these active participants, as Vicki Goodyear had mentioned. And um, we were looking for those who were actively contributing to the development or or propagation of content on social media. So we were using things like Twitter metrics, um, retweets, tweets, and and likes to to sort of um, differentiate between those who were, um, I guess, active users versus those who actually were just observing and and at the beginning, we had this purposeful sampling approach where we, um, Chad, Kevin, and I sifted through and reviewed the publicly available Twitter profiles. Um, we started with the who's who list uh, provided at Shape. I think it was like, I think 80 Twitter handles um, from of PE teachers. And um, it kind of just blossomed into uh, more of like a snowball sampling approach. So we combined purposeful sampling and snowball sampling to... Uh, recruit these participants and interestingly enough some participants even uh were tweeting out hey 
uh, I just participated in this University of Illinois study, um, you know, and, and we actually were able to sort of uh, gather some participants there and, and in some actually get 32 U.S.-based PE teachers. So. Yeah, and that's a quite a robust study in the sense of in one single issue and following these, you know, or, you know, interviewing these 32 teachers. So can you talk a little bit about how you collected and analyzed the data for the for the study? Yeah, yeah, so uh, this is Kevin again. I, I, I can take that one. Um, and so in terms of our, our data collection, uh, you know, once we had um, identified teachers who, who we were comfortable with saying, you know, these folks are pretty active. And, and that was, you know, like I, I think Chris very well described it. It was kind of this evolving process where originally we were trying to set thresholds to be able to say, well, you know, anybody below a certain number of tweets or a certain number of follows um, you know, shouldn't qualify, but we soon found that, that those types of delineations made things very restrictive. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so once we were able to identify uh, participants who, who uh, we, we did feel would contribute well to, you know, our understanding of the, of the primary research questions, I know we, we contacted them and, and set up um, uh, uh, interviews. I think that, that many of those interviews at that time um, were, were done over the phone. That's kind of like the pre-Zoom era before everybody got comfortable with Zoom. We did uh, we did a lot of the conversations, a lot of those interviews on the phone. Um, uh, but you know, each interview was probably about uh, you know somewhere between thirty on the very low end and just over an hour on the long end. Um, and uh, you know, we, we developed our questions uh, based both on what we knew about Twitter from the literature. So Chris and, and Chad have really been in that in that literature quite a bit leading up to this study. So they kind of understood and knew what the landscape of social media and professional development looked like. Whereas, you know, I had a really good grip on the, on the socialization literature. And so we tried to bring those areas together in, in putting together a list of interview questions that, um, that got at kind of the, the intersection between those literatures. Um, and, you know, the, and then once we had our uh, interviews completed, you know, audio recorded, all that kind of stuff, we got them transcribed. Um, and then uh, from there, uh, we worked in a, in, in a team. And so um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, everybody, but I, I think at that point, it was primarily uh, Casey, Kazen, uh, myself, and Chris, who were uh, kind of rolling our uh, sleeves up and, and getting into the data. And really, Kazen and, and Casey did the majority of the first past data analysis. Um, you know, this is a, a, the way that we've um, kind of moved towards doing data analysis quite a bit in our lab. Uh, where we got these wonderful, talented undergraduate students who have different perspectives. They're outside of the field. And I think that that's a critically important part of this because they're going to see things that we don't. And so they're going through the data, they're coding, and then we come together each week and have conversations about what they saw, how our code book's developing, how our themes are playing out. Um, and they're able to highlight things that, you know, Chris and I are like, wow, we never would have looked at it that way because you know, we're so entrenched within the field that it's like that set of blinders, like you can't see what's going on if you're in it. Um, so, you know, th th that was an incredibly, uh, I think, helpful part of the process. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's kind of a, a rundown on how we collected and then analyzed the data. And, you know, the data analysis resulted in the construction of these themes. So we ended up with this code book. Um, and then we took that code book and, and transferred, into, transferred it into a thematic structure. Um, you know, I think we ended up with uh, four themes um, in this paper that, that really try to describe how these teachers use Twitter for professional development and the impact that that had on them and the, uh, in the communities with which they work. 
you're you're a segue master because my next question is about your four different themes. So the first one was socialization into Twitter takes time and is often encouraged by existing members. And your second one was titled socialization through Twitter focuses on improving practices via the sharing of resources. So Chris, can you give a little bit more of detail on uh, how these two themes expanded the the how and the why? Uh, yeah, thanks, Risto. So um, first kind of looking into the socialization into Twitter takes time and is often encouraged by existing members. Um, this is kind of explains the um, how and obviously uh, participants attributed their initial involvement um, to other members of the PE community who encouraged them to explore the social media platform. So um, there were already a plethora of, of PE teachers who uh, were on Twitter, they were active and they would attend a conference and then um, sort of rope their, their friends or their, their colleagues into joining Twitter. And so um, a lot of this was um, sort of brought on by other community uh, community members of physical education teachers, and and so um, a lot of them expressed how uh, this involvement was free, uh, continued professional development on demand, and and the best thing about Twitter was that it was short and sweet, and and it was um, you know at your fingertips. You didn't have to you didn't have to pay to go to a conference. It didn't take much time. They could do it on break in between classes. And this is kind of what drew them to Twitter. And and um, if I remember correctly, a lot of prof uh, a lot of the participants mentioned that um, it was professional as compared to the other uh, platforms mm -hmm. that we see Snapchat or or um, you know Instagram. So. Um, that was kind of the, the how they got involved. Um, and then the why was mainly because they just were sharing ideas. I think this is kind of what started us, uh, started Chad and I's interest into this uh, question was, there's all these PE teachers that are sharing all this content and sharing all these ideas, but um, is there like a quality control measure in place to see whether what these PE teachers are using or, or, or sharing is um, appropriate. And so um, what we found with this theme as uh, socializing through Twitter focuses on improving practices via the sharing of resources. Uh, these teachers are sharing ideas, they're sharing resources, and that's why they're doing it. Um, but really what they're doing is they're, they're making sure that, that these teachers have um, uh, a place to go. Uh, they can feel connected. Um, and I think Chad and Chad and Kevin will mention this, but it, it prevents them feeling isolated. Um, not a lot of PE teachers have a place to go for physical education, professional development. So, um, this is where they go. Nice. And so I know the third theme, uh, titled everyone has a voice on Twitter, but content requires critical appraisal and Chris, you, you brought that up just a little bit, but how does the freedom to post any content play a role in teachers having to be critical of what they find on their feed? Yeah, I think it's absolutely essential. And, and just to kind of touch back on what Chris and, and Kevin were saying about the themes is like, we can really, during some of the conversations that I was involved with through data analysis, you know, it was 
it was interesting because I think we were all sort of new to Twitter at the time. Like, I don't even remember if I had a Twitter account uh, at the time of, of analyzing. So we were sort of viewing this from outsiders and really able to sort of kind of come down on some themes that, that, that were fresh in our mind and, th and that really made sense based on what the participants. So those conversations were pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Um, but to kind of get to the idea of, of, of having a critical eye, I mean, the decentralized nature of social media is its value. We can connect with people beyond just seeing each other at a conference. I recall when I was a PE teacher, I was the only elementary teacher in my district. So there was really nobody for me uh, to, to kind of have immediate access to. I couldn't just go down to the locker room and, you know, ask my buddy or my, or my colleagues about something. So, you know, the decentralized nature is, is so fresh and valuable and you can interact with people across the world in many ways. Um, but it also increases the responsibilities that teachers need to have when identifying activities that they, they might use in their context, when they're identifying instructional strategies or approaches that, that might be emerging through literature, through the professional uh, development circuit. So, um, you know, sort of the practical outcome of this is encouraging teachers and teacher educators really to, to, to remind and remember that any instructional approach, any, any, you know, curricular model, any content addition, any activity needs to be really filtered through the lens of the teacher's context, their specific school, their student population, uh, what their students are interested in and really how it fits in with their broader curriculum um, in general. So, um, yeah, and I, I think that you're, yeah, I think that you're right on there because I, I look at it as, you know, there's a ton of stuff on on the internet period, but then more specifically on Twitter about what might be good practice in one place, but just doesn't work. And I think that that's, you know, even more uh, reason for us to continue think, you know, teaching critical thinking skills and understanding culturally sustaining pedagogy and all these different you know, models that still keep the teacher as the most important person who is, you know, filtering that stuff because it doesn't get filtered by anybody else. And so the teacher, like you talked about, really has to have a, um, you know, an understanding of their students, of their, you know, school, of what content they have. And I think one of the other things, and I'll, I'll go to you, Kevin, here with your, your final theme, you talk about marginalization and isolation. So you talked about how this creates a community on Twitter that addresses marginalization and isolation. So can you just touch briefly on the subject of marginalization and isolation in the field and any like kind of personal experience related to this topic or, you know, how would Twitter be something that could combat these negative implications? Yeah, yeah, and, and when, when I was kind of overviewing the theory at the very beginning, I just touched on marginalization really quickly, saying that it's one of the things that, that's been explored through a socialization lens. Um, and, and, you know, going back probably to the beginning of, of research in physical education, if you go back to like the 70s and, and maybe a little bit before that, but definitely in through the, uh, the 80s and the 90s, um, the, the literature base surrounding marginality in physical education grew and continues to grow. Um, and it's basically this notion that within a school context, some subject areas are viewed as being more relevant or important or central to the overarching mission of schooling than others. 
um, and those that are more central tend to be those that are associated with, um, you know, traditionally white collar labor, uh, things that involve using your mind and your brain, um, uh, things like uh, mathematics and language arts and science. Um, those types of things tend to be, be, be viewed as a bit more central, whereas other um, other disciplines such as physical education, art, music education, that have more of a, of a manual focus. Um, so it's kind of like, you know, traditionally associated with more blue collar type work. If you think about like a mental manual labor divide, those subjects tend to be deprioritized or more peripheral to the central mission of schooling or what we call marginal. Um, and that has implications in terms of resource allocation, um, you know, Subjects that are more marginal tend to not have as much uh, you know, much of a footprint within the school. When they need things, they're kind of last on the list. And they may also be towards the top of the list when you're thinking about cutting back or reducing. So it makes subjects such as physical education a bit vulnerable at times. Um, and, and, and so, uh, and then one of, the, one of the outcomes of that marginalization or one of the associated parts of that marginalization is that teachers often feel isolated. You know, schools, especially at the elementary level, um, are usually only hire one physical education teacher, so you're kind of in there by yourself. You might have to travel between schools if you're itinerant, um, and you kind of just don't really feel like you fit in anywhere, and you don't have your colleagues within the discipline to bounce ideas off of and have critical conversations with. So the question then becomes, if you're looking for intellectual stimulation, how are you going to be able to get that? You know, we, we, we go to conferences, and that's great. The conferences only occur once a year. Uh, maybe you've got a friend or somebody you can reach out to who teaches at another school in your district or somebody you went to teach your ed with, and that's great too. But there are times where I think teachers just want to connect, want to connect with other people who, who share their experiences, share their struggles, share their views. Um, and, and, and Twitter uh, and other social media platforms are not place-based, and they're not bound by time. They occur as they occur uh, you know, in the way that, that Chad described it. And so it creates kind of like this community where teachers are able to have an ongoing discourse and conversation about things that are important to them without having to wait uh, for the next conference to come up. So yeah. if you just have a rough day teaching, or, or on the other hand, if you've got something that's really cool that you want to share with your colleagues, then then you can send that out and, and talk to people. Yeah, absolutely. And going into the discussion section, I realize in in the you know looking at your table of participants, you you touched on this a little bit that you have an overwhelming amount of elementary uh, teachers. You also had the predominant uh, members were were white. So are there specific gatekeepers? Are there like do elementary teachers have more Twitter credibility or? You know, is this policed by anybody or how does that work? So maybe, Chad, can you describe who the gatekeepers are, the role that they play in the Twitter community? Um, how does that impact others who are maybe new or um, other, you know, quote, quote, influencers? And maybe how does it relate to the hierarchy found in the education system? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think... I think it was hard for us to really nail down who the gatekeepers are, you know, really specifically. I think we can kind of infer because this idea of, of sort of hierarchy kind of kept coming up and sort of um, how different teachers who participate in our studies sort of describe their involvement as, as feeling nervous, sort of looking to other uh, 
Twitter users for validation or for advice. Um, I think these tended to be former teachers of the year or um, you know, several Twitter users have corporate endorsements um, that may or may not be explicit. So in many ways, these users accumulate a large amount of followers um, due to being promoted by uh, um, organizations or corporations. Um, and that leads to, to this perception by many people um, that they are sort of the quality control folks. So whatever they're retweeting, whatever they're liking, uh, a lot of people are sort of looking to them um, as sort of their filter rather than maybe taking that responsibility on for themselves. Now that's kind of speculative, but um, that's kind of what we kind of gathered um, from some of the responses. So, um, and, you know, we were thinking through this and, and, and probably a follow-up to this is to, you know, try to recruit people that might not have a lot of followers that might be what people would say are on the quote unquote periphery or, or, or less active users to kind of get their perception. Because again, you can see from the participant profile that these people had a lot of followers. They were predominantly elementary. Um, and so certainly a follow-up to, to this study that we're talking about would be to explore um, uh, different users um, and their perceptions about uh, the platform as professional development um, resource. Yeah, Chad, let anybody me, else want to jump in there? Let me let me go back to you on just one other question. I'm I'm fascinated about this idea of lurkers, right? So it's such a negative sounding term, but it's basically this person that uses Twitter to consume information. They they don't post. They they don't necessarily like or anything like that. So they don't have this huge following. But because we're being speculative going forward, what do you think the consumption of like for them is? Do you think that they consume at the same level? They just don't share anything, but they use it as a professional development tool? I think there's probably a lot out there. Um, and what I'm kind of thinking about in preparing for this, this interview, I'm thinking like how we sort of ascribe, you know, social media as a, as, a, as a thing. So like, you know, our social behavior on Twitter, we see that as something unique. Whereas in reality, a lot of the dynamics that are going are probably similar to our face-to-face -face social networks. They just happen to be bigger because they're, they can be on, a, you know, a digital social media platform. But, you know, you think back to any social group that you're involved in, there's always perception of different hierarchies, there's different dynamics, there's different, um, people have different sort of political capital, um, social capital. And, and so I wonder if, you know, the way that we view social media as sort of this unique thing, I mean, because it is, and it obviously has its own sort of um, interesting dynamics, but, but is it really that different uh, because of the scale? Right. Um, and so we've all had friends and we might be those, the people that sort of hang back and let, you know, the others at the dinner table do the talking and that, and that, you know, we see that as something kind of weird or odd, but like, you know, I might be a lurker sometimes cause I'm just listening more and, yeah. and that can be, you know, just as valuable. I had a great time, but you know, may not participating. So if you take that to sort of a professional development on Twitter, yeah, I think and, those people and I think Twitter, Twitter is interesting in the way that if you were in a circle with a bunch of us just having conversation and you didn't say anything the whole time, 
I would maybe ask like, hey, Chad, what's going on? Like, why didn't you engage in conversation at all? Whereas on Twitter, you can be completely anonymous. Nobody knows who you are. You just follow a bunch of people and they're on that on your timeline and they just consume. So I think there's the I think anonymity, you know, like that that is there as well. That has a lot of practical implications for, you know, I imagine down the road that that there'll probably be more organized uses of social media for explicit professional development. And we need to be careful uh, about, uh, you know, getting too far into the technology and social media venue um, at the expense of people that might not be on social media, uh, that might not be comfortable in social media participating um, because there is email, there is security concerns that a lot of people have about that. And so, you know, as we continue um, to be involved in organizations and curate professional development opportunities ourselves, you know, we need to kind of look beyond the social media um, to accommodate all different professionals. Um, Absolutely. So, so can you, um, maybe Chris, can you briefly summarize the overall benefits and challenges of Twitter? I mean, with the increasing awareness of social media in our field, you know, you have a lot of benefits and challenges that we've seen. Um, so like, what do you think the future of Twitter as professional development will look like going forward? I think that's difficult to answer, but I do think to echo Chad that it, it, it has utility in the sense that even if you're a lurker, you're, you're consuming, you're still um, able to, um, you know, have some um, form of professional development occur, whether that's an active, you know, approach or, or you're, you're being a passive uh, consumer, you know, I think there's a benefit to that. Um, because again, I think a lot of the challenges for some of these teachers that they noted was the time, uh, they can't get off for conferences. There's no professional development for them. So where are they going to go? Um, and I think that's the overall benefit of Twitter is it's, it's feasible. It's, it's, uh, readily available for anybody that has a, has internet, I suppose. Um, but obviously there's challenges and, and, and to go back, they also, um, participants discuss that they've overcome feelings of isolation and marginalization to kind of, you know, uh, echo that fourth theme, but um, some challenges really are, and, and we've already discussed this, that inability to control, um, that inability to control the quality of content that's being disseminated on this platform, as well as uh, that potential for, you know, we have elementary white males um, that are posting the content, how does that drive the, the profession forward and what's being um, taught in elementary schools um, across the U.S.? And, and that can, um, you know, fail. You know, we might not be challenging um, societal stereotypes. So, um, you know, that has the potential to perpetuate societal, societal misconceptions related to the value of PE. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And I, and, and I know that uh, Justin O'Connor brought this up a little while ago about, you know, he was in a way asking politely, but critically this question of, you know, all of these uh, posts that are put up on Twitter of choosing an activity um, based on, you know, a GIF or something like that, that they're doing this activity based on choice. And it, 
has led to a lot of physical activity response, right? So um, what is the difference between a physical education teacher and then a person that just puts up a bunch of these videos and leads exercises? And I think that that's one of the scary things about Twitter of if we let it go unchallenged and not putting up the education part of it, how how are we responsible for where PE ends up? Because maybe all of these great elementary PE teachers are doing all of this technology and all of a sudden somebody puts it together and says, I can hire physical activity instructors instead that come into your school for 15 bucks an hour to do it. And that would be very, that would be very bad for our profession. So I think that that is something also to maybe consider as a challenge, even though we are using Twitter as a free tool, which is great, but do we have any control of it? Do we control any of Twitter and are there principals out there watching and going, I could do this for cheaper? I think that's been exacerbated by this pandemic. I yeah. mean, I feel like it's when we initially did this study, I don't think we were thinking that. I, I know we were concerned about this, you know, um, I guess fitness type uh, or what was, I can't remember what the, it was mainly just a game, like uh, roll out the ball approach. What, mm -hmm. you know, scroll through Twitter, pick a game I'm going to play today. Yeah. You know, it's not, there's no curricular alignment in their decision-making, you know, there's yeah. nothing. It's just a roll out the ball approach. So, yeah. So Chad, where do you, where do you go from here? I mean, you talked a little bit already about perhaps doing some future research. So what are the next steps or recommendations of what we still need to find out? I think the sky's the limit. I mean, I think of so many new scholars or interested scholars, this, this is potentially a career's worth of research. So, um, you know, we hit on a little bit, we need to, we need to understand, um, the, the broad uh, range of participants and their experiences beyond just the white males, beyond just elementary uh, school teachers and how they perceive um, the interactions and how they've experienced um, these different sites as professional development um, venues or not. Um, I think I think we could assume, but I think it would be really interesting to understand how they're identifying the, what their filter actually is and then how that translates into the gym. We assume that they're scrolling through Twitter and, you know, a lot of teachers are doing this and, and taking the game and kind of, you know, using it. Um, but maybe that's not the case. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so how are teachers actually using what they identify on, um, on these platforms? And the, the last thing that just kind of came up between what Chris was saying and you were saying, Risto, is like the incentives of, of, you know, what are the incentives for these large accounts uh, to post? Are they getting paid? Who's controlling the message? Who's dictating what's being placed through these, uh, through these uh, uh, accounts? Um, and so, well, I don't, I don't know if we, we want to pursue like controlling the content, but, you know, we need to understand the incentives for these large accounts and why they post what they post and to what extent that's being accepted by the broader population because followers might not necessarily uh, uh, result in 
technical influence. It appears that they have influence because people like, people retweet, people, but do people use that? Um, yeah. And so, you know, those are just a few ideas. I think there's a million other ones that we could, you know, follow as well. Yeah. And you're well on your way in creating a career in, uh, in doing this stuff. So um, let me go uh, for the last question. I'll, I'll bring this back to Casey. Um, where are you going from here? Uh, how is working with the research lab influence what, you know, your personal or professional development? So I am going to occupational therapy graduate school next year, which I'm very excited about. Um, working in this lab has definitely helped me find an interest in research. And I know now that I want to continue research in graduate school, it's also given me the confidence to know that I'm capable of being a part of a research team and conducting it, which I wouldn't think I was before. Um, it has also taught me skills that are important for personal and professionals, like communication responsibility and reliability. Um, I know these skills I'm going to use in graduate school and my future career. So it's been a big help preparing me for grad school. Well, good luck in and that. And this is just one of multiple. Thank you. If I, if I could just throw in at the yeah. end there too, this is just one of several different projects that, that Casey's involved in. I mean, she's probably going to leave, but it might take a little bit of time for publication to catch up, but she's probably going to end up, you know, coming out of her experience working in our lab with, with uh, probably three or four publications under her belt. And, and that's more than some graduate students finish with, um, you know, that's really commendable. And I think it says more about Casey and her drive and, uh, uh, in her um, in her commitment to working with us than anything, but I also think it says a lot about opportunities that are available through a lab structure like ours, where we can engage undergraduate students and provide them with these types of experiences, and and I, socialize doctoral students into mentoring as well. I mean, it was a good experience for me during the time that this study took place to kind of see how the qualitative lab at Illinois operates um, and trying to take the lessons that I've gained and, and apply them at Georgia State. So I'm sure Chris, in the same way, wherever he ends up, you know, will take a lot of the same ideas and operational uh, approaches uh, with him as well. And yeah. just like it always is, all about socialization. Always I mean, we can have another podcast about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, but I think that, you know, knowing you know, a bunch of different people who have been on this podcast, there's not a ton of labs out in, in the U.S. And I think that Illinois is one. I know Greensboro has one that, you know, there are, there are a few, but not at every university. There's not a structure of undergraduate, graduate, you know, PhD students, supervisors going through and actually having multiple projects going on at the same time. And I know that there are some out there, but I don't know if it's as common as people who graduate from those programs, you know, understand. So I think that, you know, for for those PhD students, it's a tremendous opportunity for Casey. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity to learn research and perhaps that leads into a career in research and maybe it doesn't but it also provides as an undergraduate student a huge you know resume builder a opportunity to do research that's important um so i i think you know the lab itself the structure that you've set up over the years um, um has to be commended uh, there as well so um, Especially for a qualitative lab, like 
those conversations that I was a part of, I mean, were so valuable from the outside perspective, like Kevin mentioned earlier. So, I mean, I think it's helpful in, in sort of the physiology and quanti quantitative labs, but for qualitative lab in particular, those perspectives were so valuable to this process. So let me ask uh, off the off the script here question. Um, can a person code without understanding the literature? So can you talk uh, in anybody basically just how do you how do you code as an undergraduate student or as a grad student that's new to the research? I know, Kevin, you said earlier about how it's beneficial, actually, because they come out, they come at it from a different lens. They, they, they're not necessarily, you know, whether it's jaded or biased or however you want to put it. But can you talk about that process? And then I'll, I'll wrap up after that. Yeah, 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 sure. So just just real quickly, um, you know, I, I think I think to be, to be just to clarify a little bit, um, you know, it, it was a group environment that we did the analysis in and the way that i've started to think about group qualitative analysis is that there are different roles that need to be at, at the table you need to have somebody who's a content expert and knows the content and you need to have somebody who's a theory expert and knows the theory that you're drawing from and then you also need somebody there who is a methods expert and understands how to run the process and sometimes those roles are filled by the same person uh, and other times, you know, those roles are dispersed across different people. But, but from my perspective, as long as you've got those different kind of perspectives represented, um, th then, you know, uh, there were definitely times when, when Casey and Kazen didn't understand or needed some clarification, but we would just talk those things out and that would kind of snowball and lead to conversations about PE and about what we do and why. And I, I'd like to think that that was educational for them and, and also educational for us as we realized that some things that we take for granted, you know, outsiders might look at a little bit differently. Um, you know, so I, I think that you, you, you don't want to have a situation where everybody analyzing the data doesn't understand the discipline. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that that would be beneficial. But by having some insider and outsider perspective, I think you end up with a more robust um, and, and deeper analysis process. I'd also mention that Casey's involvement in the lab evolved over time. So initially, she wasn't involved in the coding or analyzing of data. She may have um, done a more meaningful, meaning, um, you know, meaningless task such as transcribing. Um, I hate to say that, but. Um, and, and they get comfortable with, I mean, you know, just transcribing our interviews and then, you know, they work their way up to being able to help us analyze. So I think that really does help. Yeah. And the other thing too, Risto, is that everybody, um, you know, mo mo maybe not everybody, but most people, even if they're not in physical education, they had a physical education. And so there is that point of reference. So I remember, um, I don't know if it was Casey or Kazen or both, but I remember having conversations where we talked about, you know, what they remembered from their own PE experiences and how they saw that or didn't see that in the data. Yeah. And, and thank you for that answer, because I think to me, the, the idea of setting up a lab and having those different roles and getting undergraduate students involved in meaningful research projects is really interesting. So, um, but let's, uh, let's close it off at that. Uh, I appreciate all you for coming on. Um, I love the format actually that, you know, having more than one person from the team on here so I can get a couple of different perspectives. Um, I also like the analysis of social media as it uh, really does make me think about how I use it 
and now I'm second guessing how I consume information on Twitter and um, you know how I suggest my undergraduate and graduate students to engage with Twitter. Um, so that's all we have on this episode. You can find all our episodes linked at the hpewebsite.com. Um, you can also find the blogs, uh, research summaries there for free, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at the HPE podcast. Um, and we will link to all of these Twitter handles of the lovely people we had on today. Um, so you can follow them on Twitter and then you can see their next research study pop up and uh, participate. So thanks everybody. Appreciate it.